The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Well, thanks to Julia Wong for joining us in studio again. You can catch her report tonight on Global Edmonton at 5 and 6. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Canada's peacekeeping mission in Mali is up and running. Uh, There are 250 Canadian troops there, including many members of 408 Tactical Helicopter Squadron based right here in Edmonton. Now, Global News was the first Canadian broadcaster to witness the mission in action. Reporter Jeff Semple, who is the European correspondent for Global National, was recently in Gao, where the Canadians are based. He joins us now. Jeff, thanks for joining us tonight. I think it's about 9.30 in London, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm used to living on Canadian time, so not to worry. (laughs) Well, thank you for taking the time. Maybe for, you know, for our listeners and and those who uh, don't know, can you explain what has been going on in Mali over the past number of years and and why this peacekeeping mission um, has been ongoing for, for five years or so now? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as you say, Mali, not a country that we're necessarily all that used to hearing about in the news in in Canada or in the West, but uh, it is a country in West Africa and a significant one. It's the eighth largest on the continent, about twice the size of France. And it's often talked about in two halves. So you have the southern half of the country, which is home to the capital, the vast majority of the population. And then you have the northern half of the country, which has become effectively a lawless desert. It is right on the edge of the Sahara, and it is where as many as 20 different armed militant groups, some of them ethnic rebel groups, some of them Islamist extremist groups with ties to ISIS or al-Qaeda, all of them battling for control of the northern half of the country. And it is the northern half where these 250 Canadians just moved in, including, as you mentioned, that uh, Edmonton-based 408 Tactical Helicopter Squadron. Um, And so basically they are joining a United Nations mission that has been going on there for the past five years and has not been going particularly well, frankly. Uh, It is one of the biggest UN operations, some 13,000 UN troops, but it is also the deadliest UN mission on Earth. At least 170 peacekeepers have been killed there over the past five years. And Jeff, what is their mandate? What what exactly is their mission? Because peacekeeping, it doesn't sound like that's a... A relatively easy thing to do in the area you just described. No, that's right. And I think, you know, there has been a lot of debate and discussion, I think even from UN officials about, you know, this is a peacekeeping mission versus, you know, almost a counterterrorism mission in some respects. It's certainly a far cry from the traditional sort of model of peacekeeping where you would think the UN peacekeepers there to try and keep the peace between two warring sides. But in this case, as we say, we've got as many as 20 different groups. The United Nations is there to try and allow the democratically elected government in Mali to do its thing. But, uh, you know, while that has, they have had some success in the south, as, as I say, in the north, it is, you know, completely out of control. Um, the Canadian mandate is very specific in, in this mission. They are not doing ground patrols, for example, like some of their European counterparts, the Dutch or the Germans. Uh, the Canadians are there to provide support from the skies, and that's pretty much it. And that means either air transportation, so they're flying some of their UN allies elsewhere in the country to some outlying communities that are difficult to access by road. 
The most important role the Canadians are playing there, arguably, is air medical evacuation. And in that regard, we're actually doing something that Canada has never done before. Traditionally, in a conflict zone or a war zone, if a soldier gets injured, the response is to send a helicopter to pick up that injured soldier and rush them to the nearest hospital, right? But in Mali, the Canadians are effectively bringing the hospital to the patient. They have sent three Chinook helicopters, extraordinarily large helicopters, about three meters long, with enough space to carry a full Canadian medical staff. So each time the helicopter is deployed, it goes with a Canadian doctor, a Canadian nurse, two medics, and two armed escorts. And even those escorts have a high level of medical training. And so they are able to begin operating and begin their medical procedures as soon as they pick the patient up. And according to the commander there on the ground, people can expect to receive about the same level of medical care flying in a Chinook helicopter above a conflict zone as you might expect to receive at a hospital there in Edmonton. Is, is that something we've done before? <laughs> no. No, that is a first. No. We That is actually a first for Canada. We've never done that before, and it's, it's almost a first internationally, though. Um, Canada has borrowed a page from the British playbook. Uh, the British Army started doing this sort of thing in Afghanistan in the latter years of uh, their deployment there. And so, and they did show that they actually had a better rate of saving lives. The survival rate was better because, of course, you're, you're saving precious seconds. Instead of having to waste time taking them to the hospital, you're bringing the hospital to them. And one of the things about, I mean, and Jeff, you were in uh, one of the Chinooks. You've, you've seen it first. You've seen it firsthand. The, the Griffins are the, uh, the armed escorts uh, flying ahead and around. Um, it is really quite the operation that is is inside there and I know just recently they performed their first their first mission where they actually went in and um, and and rescued someone and pulled them out do you know the details on that you know we well we don't know too many details all we were told is that they, they did as you say fly their first successful medical rescue mission that they were asked to go in and pick up a UN peacekeeper who was injured just north of Gao, which is the city where the Canadians are based, along with many other of their UN counterparts. Um, so they they swooped in and they were able to. I think in that case they took the the patient to the hospital and uh, and they survived. Uh, that was about the extent of the details we've received on that. It's it's um, it's a bit of a quiet time. Oh, are you still there, Jeff? Relative. Oh, there he is. Yep. Oh, sorry. That's sorry. okay. I had a lot of signal there. Hope you can hear me okay. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a, a quieter, quieter now in part because it's the rainy season in in, 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 in West Africa. And, and as a result, the number of, of attacks and acts and violence has, 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 the concern is as the rainy season ends, as it's expected to do over the next couple of weeks, that the violence will return and the Canadians may have their hands very full. It also, because the violence that we've been seeing in the north is beginning to spread south, into central Mali, and that's a big concern. Not only does it risk potentially spreading outside of the country's borders, potentially risk splitting the country in half even, but there's also a lot more civilians in that area, and that's a concern we heard a lot about on the ground in Mali over the past couple of weeks. You mentioned the Canadians having a somewhat limited or specific role. I shouldn't say limited, but a specific role in this UN mission. Do they have a specific commitment to how long that role will be? Yeah, a very hard end date by the sounds of it. July 31st 
of next year. So this is a one-year mission. The government's military leaders have been unequivocal about that, insisting that there will not be an extension in that case, despite the fact that they faced some criticism from within the UN for Canada mm-hmm. to take on a longer and perhaps a larger role in this conflict, in this peacekeeping mission. But the government has insisted that this is a one-year mandate, despite the fact that the conflict in Mali is expected to drag on for many years, perhaps even to come. Global National Europe uh, Bureau Chief Jeff Semple joining us on the phone this afternoon. He's just back from from Gao Mali and uh, spending some time at Camp Castor, where the um, peacekeepers are based. Can you tell us about Camp Castor, Jeff? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. I have to say, for the Canadians, it's remarkably upbeat. I think in part because uh, I mean, the, you know, spirits are quite high there. I think in part because they just showed up, but also because of the mandate that Canada has that they are, you know, there to save lives and it's an easy mission to get on board with and to get behind according to the people we've been speaking with there. But uh, Camp Castor is sort of funny. It sort of feels like almost a small town on the edge of the Sahara Desert. Canada shares the camp 600 meters by 600 meters with their Dutch and German counterparts, the population of about 1,500 people. So it really does feel like a town. You've got, you know, a a barbershop, an outdoor cinema, even sort of a makeshift cinema with a projector screen on a wall. There's a local pub, uh, albeit serving non-alcoholic <laughs> German beer or near beer, as they like to call it. Uh, and, you know, there really is a sense of, of community there. And I think that's, you know, that's important, according to the people we spoke with, because, uh, you know, this is a high pressure, very extreme climate. I mean, it's, you know, temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius. There's regular dust storms, thunderstorms, torrential rain. The Canadians are working there on deployments for the next six months, seven days a week, at least 12 hours a day. So there is an effort made on the camp to try and when they're not working, normalize things a little bit and give them a space to unwind. When I was there, the Canadians even hosted bingo night for their (laughs) uh, Dutch and German counterparts, which had a pretty impressive turnout. Um, Sort of like summer camp is the way that one... uh, Canadian soldier described it to me and that they're also sleeping in these very tight sea containers, two or three to a room. So you get very close, get to know your roommates very well, of course, uh, and it is the edge of the Shahara Desert. So water is in very short supply and there's a strict two-minute shower rule. But as far as military camps go, particularly on the edge of the desert, I think uh, they'll all agree that they're living pretty well there, pretty comfortably, in part because their Germans and the Dutch have already built this camp and been living in it for mm-hmm. five years. So the Canadians mm-hmm. are the ones who've just moved in. You know, I'm uh, curious uh, when you talk about uh, temperatures and rainfall and lack of uh, drinking water, that kind of thing. I've I've been blessed to have the opportunity to go to one of those camps uh, myself before in the United Arab Emirates. And what was what the Canadians discovered when they first arrived was that some of their equipment didn't work or that uh, sand doesn't go well with uh, certain... Well, sand and helicopters right. is tricky. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Have there been any of those kind of uh, stories? I know it's early, but uh, from the Canadians or the others? Yes, and in, in cameras, news cameras. <laughs> <laughs> we discovered. Uh, fortunately, we brought a couple. But yeah, no, that has been actually, I think, one of the main storylines, for lack of a better word, that the Canadians have encountered over the past few weeks. And in fact, I mean, I think the consensus really is that the greatest danger, I mean, it's more than an inconvenience, that the greatest danger that our Canadians' troops face in West Africa probably isn't from the various armed rebel groups. It probably is the weather uh, Mm -hmm. because it is Mm -hmm. so extreme and because we do have those unpredictable dust storms that, you know, create problems, you know, for the helicopters, but they also can create helicopters, you know, 
potentially life-threatening problems. And actually, we experienced a bit of that firsthand. Uh, I was invited to come along for a training exercise with the, Can- one of, with the Canadian Chinook helicopter at night where they were going to practice a nighttime rescue landing. It was just a training exercise. We were invited to come aboard, uh, pitch dark and overcast nights where they're wearing the night vision goggles and suddenly realized just based on the chatter over the heli- over the intercom and the radio that we were in a bit of trouble. And uh, the hel- suddenly the storm had, had come in without warning. It was a lightning storm. There was a lot of haze and dust and the pilot lost visibility. They couldn't see the ground. They couldn't see the horizon. And so there were some tense moments there. Now, the pilot expertly managed to then climb out of that storm and return back to base. Um, Had it not been a training exercise, you know, they admitted that they would have felt pressure to push forward through that storm. And, you know, this is is dangerous stuff. And, I mean, we have seen deaths from other Western countries who are operating there, the Germans and the Dutch, you know, soldiers who've been killed in helicopter crashes. Um, so, the, you know, this is, a, you know, more than an inconvenience and an annoyance, and it is that, the, the weather, but uh, it's also potentially a danger for our Canadian troops. I think one of the things to point out too, you know, we keep hearing about this being the most, you know, dangerous peacekeeping mission that there have been, that there's ever been, that the 170 peacekeepers have been killed over the past number of years. Um, a lot of those, from what I understand, though, Jeff, have come from ground patrols and IEDs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and, I mean, that's, and the Canadians aren't doing that. And the Canadians are not doing that, exactly. Our mandate does not include infantry patrols. Uh, basically, the only time that the Canadians are leaving the base is in a helicopter and the militant groups that we're talking about haven't shown that they have at least up to this point access to surface to air missiles or mm-hmm. anything like that nothing that they should be able to target a helicopter from from the ground so it, for that very reason our canadians are perhaps safer than their allies are uh, given you know the role that I mean, I went out on a ground patrol with the Germans, and they're very concerned about improvised explosive devices. So the Dutch actually showed me a number that they've recovered from the roadways. And, you know, it's, it's also, there are, you know, there are around 50 countries taking part in this, this mission. Um, not all of them uh, have militaries as well prepared and trained and armed as the Canadians. Um, you know, we've seen some of the some countries like Bangladesh uh, taking a, a heavy toll, where their soldiers have been killed either while leading convoys or doing ground patrols. So the greatest threat, I think, by far, is on the roadways, and that's mm-hmm. somewhere our Canadian troops won't be. And I think the training of the Canadian troops is top notch as well. Yeah, and we're used to we're used to that threat from Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. I think in terms of the threat of IEDs. But uh, again, I mean, there were a lot of comparisons made to. Our experience with Afghanistan, though, you know, many in the Canadian military are reluctant to draw direct comparisons between various conflicts and missions, of course, but I think, you know, the threat from IEDs operating in these desert conditions. But one of the key differences, again, coming back to the weather in part, Mm -hmm. is that um, there aren't as many, I mean, in in some ways, and actually the Canadian commander said that the the Mali feels more like the Canadian Arctic than, (laughs) than it does Afghanistan, and that's because the weather is equally unpredictable, though it's plus 40 instead of minus 40. Um, and there aren't as many weather stations and fueling stations. So every time the helicopter is deployed, they have to know, have a really good sense of where they're going because they won't have to be able to stop and refuel. And it also makes the weather that much more unpredictable because, you know, Mali is a giant country, as I say, and there aren't a lot of weather stations in the north to tell them what's coming.
Jeff, I got to thank you for your coverage of this and for this conversation today. And I'm not going to lie to you because I'm already in the job I want. So I, <laughs> I, I don't mind just making a confession. I Googled Mally this morning to see where Mally was. Um, it's an important mission and a dangerous one, and one that most Canadians, I would venture to say, are perhaps not fully aware of. And I think it's important that we get this uh, information out there, and I appreciate the job you do in doing that. Yeah, my pleasure, absolutely. And I think, you know, Mally doesn't get the, the coverage that perhaps it should. And I think, you know, we've been asked why, you know, why should this mission matter to Canadians? And there are a number of reasons why Mali matters. Um, but I think the North in particular has become a vacuum for groups like ISIS, yeah. uh, a group that's lost ground in Syria and Iraq that's looking to set up shop elsewhere. And I think that's a big concern that that probably would matter to Canadians. And the other is that Mali is just such a large country. It's in the Sahel region. It's on that migrant route up through Africa that we've heard so much about. So Mali matters outside of Mali. And uh, and I think, you know, it's, 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 this at least has offered an opportunity for us to talk about and highlight a country that we might not otherwise. You know what, and Jeff, for those who have uh, loved ones who might be listening right here in Edmonton right now who have loved ones in, uh, in Gao on this mission, thank you for your coverage and thanks for taking the time this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Great to be with you. Yeah, Take care, thanks, Jeff. guys. Appreciate it. Well, still to come on the show, just after 3 o'clock, Grant Fedork from Leading Edge Physiotherapy joins us with Fit After 40. We're talking about ankles today, ankle sprains, ankle injuries, and as always, Grant will take your questions and answer whatever sure will. issue you're facing. <laughs> starting Can we go with swollen base, ankles? I've got that. <laughs> starting from the base of my neck all the way down. <laughs> you could literally, we could schedule a year of these just by starting at your big toe. Yeah, <laughs> Working our way up, yours or mine. Oh my gosh, it'd be 2020 by the time we got to the waist. Uh, so we'll do that with Grant Fedora coming up. Plus, uh, again, 425, your word of the day, your chance to win your way on the winter getaway to Montego Bay. The 6.30 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad.